So one of the things that helps in ritual is to actually have to do something. A lot of times, you know, we just sit and are in a, this receptive mode. But, you know, like if you were raised as a Catholic, as I was, you know, at different times during the Mass, the service, you'd be kneeling down, you'd be, you know, doing the sign of the cross or repeating something out loud. So this is something... I have more strength here. Thanks, Scott. And Amy has more, too. Could you bring me back a chant book when you come back?
And uh, one of the things that uh, Tara Brock mentioned, she quotes Trumpa Rinpoche, and he was asked once, you know, what does the core protect you from? And he answered, well, of course, yourself. You know, in the sense of protecting us from our own stories that we tell ourselves, from our reactivity, from all the ways we, we tend to go toward a false refuge, you know, things that don't really protect us. So we can just hold it, maybe hold both ends of it in our hands. You can close your eyes if you'd like. And I'm just going to read what Michelle transcribed from Tara's talk. And as you're doing that, with each of the refuges, you can just reflect on what that means for you. And she does it in a slightly different order. She does the Dhamma, the Sangha, and then the Buddha. So we're hearing these words and having a sense of where we actually rest our heart, where we actually find safety, what really matters. So now reading from Tara's words. So we begin and sense what it means to take refuge in the Dharma, to take refuge in truth, to take refuge in the reality of our moment-to-moment experience, this aliveness, this vividness, this mystery of being here, really here. So when you take refuge in the Dharma, you take refuge in the life that is really here. The invitation is to mentally whisper the words, I take refuge in the Dharma, in sacred presence. And when you feel that sincerity of taking refuge in sacred presence, sense your aspiration to take refuge in truth. When you sense that, what it means to you, your commitment to it, please tie the first knot into your protection cord. So go ahead when you're ready. more seconds for everyone. Just continue to reflect on this commitment to truth, the way it is, the life that's happening now. And the second reflection on what it means to take refuge in the Sangha is to take refuge in love. What for you in your life is cherished? What your commitment is? What your longing is? And as you sense the meaning of refuge and love, who we are, it's a homecoming to the truth and fullness of what we are. You might whisper the words, I take refuge in Sangha. 
and know that your intention, your aspiration is to bring your whole being awake in loving relationship. When you feel that sense of fullness of taking refuge in the Sangha, the spiritual community, in conscious relationship, please tie the second knot into your cord. So don't rush, take your time, and then we'll tie the second knot. Think of this as taking refuge in a full exposure of life. Showing up completely. And our third reflection I take refuge in Buddha. Refuge in Buddha nature is ultimately taking refuge in awakeness, in the presence that is really our source. Taking refuge as Buddha is, is taking refuge in awareness. So take a moment to feel presence and cherishing of that. To take refuge in Buddha nature is to take refuge in what we are. Again, sensing for yourself what this means to turn toward the awakened heart-mind, to sense how it lives in in an awakened being and how this awareness shines in your own being. As you feel your dedication to taking refuge in the awakened heart, mind, when you feel that sincerity, please tie the third knot. Now mostly in silence. If you want it on your wrist, I think sometimes people consider the left wrist receptive. You can wrap it once around, like I'm doing with a short piece, so if you have a longer piece, you can go around a few times. If you want it tied around your neck, you can do that. And then you're going to find somebody. You're going to walk mostly in silence, find somebody near you. Have them tie yours, you can tie theirs, and then come back to your seat. Okay, so we'll do that now. And it's this work with the Sangha, this interaction, that completes the ritual. And we'll follow it with the chanting of the three refuges. And you might want to make sure as you're tying it that it's not too tight and not too loose.
pass this is around and people can trim it if they want. Appreciating our little protection cord where we put it. And it's not something that you want to just cut off and throw away. It's okay if you don't want to wear it, that, you know, keep it on tonight for the program. But then if you decide to take it off, you can either untie it or if you have to cut it. And uh, then just find a place where you can, you know, you could use it as a bookmark in one of your Dharma books if you don't have a alter a, a more public place to put it out that you'll see it. But to have it somewhere where you might bump into it from time to time would be ideal. Because the whole idea is that it stands as a symbol for us now. And that's why you wouldn't want to just throw it away. And if you, not to be superstitious, because it's just, these things are all pragmatic. You know, there's nothing magical about it. But, you know, if you were to eventually, like, let's say you did something else later that was much more meaningful than what we did tonight, but still you wanted to, you would want to respect what we did tonight, so you wouldn't want to just throw it in the garbage. You might want to burn it or you could bury it, you know, or just something that's a little better than throwing it in the trash. And that again, what we're doing, what we're protecting isn't something magical. We're just protecting the sincerity that whatever sincerity we have tonight, we're just protecting that. We're honoring that sincerity. So that's why you wouldn't want to be dismissive about it. And that's just generally true with all the stuff related to what's really important to us. You know, Dharma books, for example. You know, in Asia, they may be taken a little too far, but, you know, just generally to be respectful of things that are symbolic of what's really important for us is good. So let's do the refuges and precepts now. And uh, we're on page 35. And we're just going to do the poly at the normal pace. So we'll do the Nama Namotasa three times. This is just honoring our teacher, the Buddha. And then we'll do the refuges three times. When you see that word dutiampi, that just means for the second time. When you see the word tatiampi, it means the third time. So I'll ring the bell three times.
opening up small groups tonight um, in just a little bit, another 15 minutes. I wanted to just share a few more thoughts about Sangha and the refuges more generally. As you go home and as this class, this course in the three refuges ends, just to you know, reflect on your own commitment and instead of being dismissive when our commitment isn't as strong as it might otherwise be or isn't as strong as what it used to be, but just to sort of know where it is. And uh, remember, I, I mentioned, and this comes from that article that you have a link to from Yanamanika uh, Tara, the Buddhist monk, and he talks about, and I think this is traditional, four stages of commitment, homage by frustration. So this is just the respect. You know, there are a lot of things we respect, but we're not that committed to. But we respect it. We honor it. But we're not going to take it up. So that's one level of commitment, that we just respect this path, for example. But we're not really ready to be a student of the path or take it up. Then the second stage is acceptance of discipleship. So we say, okay, I respect this enough, I'm going to be a student of this path. I'm going to apply my mind, I'm going to study, I'm going to learn, I'm going to check it out. So we're committed to learning. Not just committed to honoring something that seems good, but we're actually committed to taking it in. And then if you, we take it in and it really seems to deliver the goods and feels right, then the third stage of commitment, it becomes a guiding ideal for our life. Like, it's not just something I'm learning about. You know, I'm learning an instrument, I'm learning a foreign language, I'm learning how to garden. That now it's like, this is, you know, this is the most important thing that I'm learning in my life. We're practicing keeping it in the center of our life. Things push us around, you know, different things, fads come up, things we get interested in. We renovate part of our house or we have a new relationship or something big happens at work. Or, But we don't let those things intrude too long before we realize, wait, but this is what's really important. I still have to deal with that, but this is what's important. So as I'm dealing with that, I'm remembering this is what's important. And then the total surrender stage of commitment, where we basically never lose that sense that this is what's important. We don't get pushed around too much. But it doesn't mean our life doesn't change or different things don't happen. But we never forget that this is what's really important. You know, awakening is what's really important. Whether we're having an intimate conversation with a friend, or washing dishes, or reading a book. And like, it's not like we need a break or want a break. It's like who we are. It's what we do. So I just wanted to bring us back to that place. And then read another paragraph from Kumpa Rinpoche. This is from an article he wrote. He probably didn't write it. It was probably a transcription of one of his talks that was uh, printed in Shambhala Sun a long time ago. It's the last paragraph of this, on this article I'll uh, 
about the three refuges. The disciple of taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and Sangha is something more than a doctrinal or ritual thing. You are being physically infected with commitment to the Buddha Dharma, right, to this path of awakening. Buddhism is transmitted into your system. At that particular point, the energy, the power, and the blessing of basic sanity that has existed in the, in the lineage for 2,500 years in an unbroken tradition and discipline from the time of the Buddha enters your system. And you finally become a full-fledged follower of awakening. You are a living future Buddha at that point. It's nice, isn't it? The discipline of taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha is something more than a doctrinal or ritual thing. You are being physically infected with commitment to the Buddha Dharma. So Buddha Dharma means this path of awakening. Buddhism is transmitted, right, this... It's like, uh, I think last week we talked about there is this stream. People have been doing this. Whether they're Buddhists or not doesn't matter. People have been turning toward awareness, toward mindfulness forever, according to Buddhist cosmology. And listen, there's no beginning. You go crazy thinking about where it all started. So people have been turning toward awareness for a long time. And because this whole idea of past and future and over there and right here is all concept, that stream of all that humanity or living beings turning toward this path of awakening, it's right here, it's available. And we're kind of entering that stream. When we recognize it as good, recognize it as something that is a refuge, and we take it up, then we enter that stream. He says, as I read before, you know, we become infected, physically infected with commitment to the Buddha Dharma. Buddhism is transmitted into your system, and at that particular point, the energy, the power, and the blessing of basic sanity that has existed in the lineage for 2,500 years in an unbroken tradition and discipline from the time of the Buddha enters your system, and you finally become a full-fledged follower of this time. You are a living future Buddha at that point. So a couple of thoughts about taking refuge in Sangha to uh, like one of the easiest ways to distinguish it from like a more conventional sense of taking refuge in community or taking refuge in the good qualities of our friends and our teachers and our mentors is to be reminded that we're not taking refuge in something that's personal. You know, like for example, some people have been in their life quite moved by the Dalai Lama. For just as an example, you can bring to mind somebody else maybe that has been a powerful influence in your life, some teacher, whether you actually know the teacher personally or not. But we have this tendency to personalize our refuge. It's just what our conventional mind does, you know, this tendency to personify things. 
So we personify what's good, we personify what our refuge is. So now we need to undo that, you know, depersonify. Not let our refuge be something personal. Whether we're seeing it, reminded of it by something external like the Dalai Lama, or whether we're seeing it internally, we don't want to make it something personal. You know, instead we want to see it as something inherent, something natural, something available. One of the things we give uh, to people who are starting up community groups at the center is this passage from Ajahn Tomato, where he's talking about Sangha. He says, Sangha is the society or the community of virtuous ones, those who are practicing, who are using wisdom, who are contemplating the truth. When you take refuge in Sangha, you are no longer taking refuge in your personality or your individual abilities, but in something greater than that. Sangha is communal, where our personalities are no longer terribly important. Whether you're a man or a woman, young or old, educated or uneducated, or whatever, these are no longer the important things in Sangha. The Sangha is those who practice, those who live in the right way, those who are contemplating truth and using wisdom. When you take refuge in Sangha, it means that you are willing to give up personal qualities and demands and expectations as an individual person. You give these things up for the welfare of the Sangha, those who are practicing, moving toward the truth, realizing truth. And so we can, you know, we can really take that up as a practice. You know, whatever we feel that's wholesome here in this community, for example, you know, to allow that distillation. So it's not personal. It's not that, you know, I care about this person or their particular qualities. But it's, it's something that transcends the personal, the particular. That's why we often talk about it as when this awakened mind, when Buddha, this inherent clarity is intimate, knowing things as they are, then they're Sangha. And it's like just learning to see that. And it's not like we're ignoring the personal, but we're looking right to it. So I see Jeff, and it's not that I, it's not like the Sangha in Jeff is somehow distinct from the personality from the body, from my memory of all my interactions with Jeff. But it's, you know how it is, we soften the gaze, you know, we look, we can look at somebody and we're confused or we're being caught in our story or our memory of that person. But it's like learning to see Jeff as a force of nature. And you know, often we think, and you know, as Ajahn Tomato did in this paragraph, you know, just the beautiful qualities, but even the unbeautiful qualities can be sangha when they're seen in the right way. So like, when I see Jeff as a force of nature, a movement of nature, then whether he's, you know, in that moment manifesting anger or manifesting really beautiful generosity, 
it's like I can see it as Sangha because I see it as a like the beauty of nature and even his anger can be a really beautiful teaching for me that's what we talked about I think we talked about this last last week rather about how community and being committed whether you're committed to one person in a marriage or a partnership or committed to a community a family you know community like common ground then that commitment you know we're committed to the rubbing and scrubbing like seeing the interactions that we have seeing it as nature and really letting it in letting it sort of toss us around throw us for a loop because initially you know it triggers something in us and we take it personally but we stay with it because we're committed because we're in relationship we're in community because it's Sangha we're, we're there we understand that even though it feels personal we understand it isn't personal and that this is a powerful teacher in the same way that awareness and the emptiness of awareness is a teacher and Dharma things as they are as a teacher and relatedness is also our teacher for us learning to respond learning to engage learning to show up learning to feel what we feel in relationship to others in relationship to life this is a powerful teacher this is again from Trungpa Rinpoche that article that he wrote on the three refuges and he really brings this out I think in this article he says your friends in the Sangha provide a continual reference point which create, creates a continual learning process they act as a mirror they act as mirror reflections to remind you or warn you in living situations that is the kind of companionship that is meant by Sangha. We are all in that same boat. We share a sense of trust and a sense of larger scale organic friendship. So taking refuge in the Sangha means being willing to work with your fellow students, your brothers and sisters in Dharma, while being independent at the same time. Nobody imposes his or her heavy notions on the rest of the Sangha. Instead, each member of the Sangha is an individual who is on the path in a different way from all the others. It is because of that that you get constant feedback of all kinds, negative and positive, encouraging and discouraging. These very rich resources become available to you when you take refuge in the Sangha, the fellowship of students. The Sangha is the community of people who have the perfect right to cut through your trips and feed you with their wisdom as well as the perfect right to demonstrate their own neuroses and be seen through by you the companionship with the Sangha within the Sangha is a kind of clean fellowship without expectation without demand but at the same time fulfilling and maybe you've heard already but there's this very funny story about Gurdjieff this uh, well-known spiritual teacher been dead for a while now and he had a spiritual community in France and there was one person evidently that was really hard to live with <coughs> it was a residential community and uh, this person was just hard to bear and uh, eventually you know he got the message that everybody hated him and didn't want him around and he left and Gurdjieff the teacher tracked him down he was like in Paris and offered him money to come back 
Because he had a sense that for the health of the community, you know, it was really important that he be there, that this person be there. And that's, you know, that's how it is for us too. You know, it's one of the reasons we have small groups and it's random, as opposed to, you know, just find two other people to meet with. So that we get sometimes to be with the people we want to be with, sometimes with the people we don't even know whether we want to be with them yet, and sometimes with people we don't want to be with. And that's the thing, that we don't have to like everybody in Sangha, or we don't even need to like every aspect of our partners or our family. I think it's really healthy when I hear parents talk about parts of their children, patterns in their children that they don't like. Just be honest about that. But that doesn't mean that they don't unconditionally love their child, at least some of the time. (laughs) And it's the same with our community here and all of our communities. That that's part, you know, part of what makes Sangha Sangha is that we understand that we can't learn what we need to learn without community, without the commitment to showing up, the commitment to be touched, to be messed with, messed with by others in our lives. So I'll leave it here, and we have some time now for small groups and anything related to Sangha, you know, what you've learned from Sangha, sightings of Sangha, you know, the beautiful Sangha, how you've seen Sangha in really not classical situations where somebody's being really nice or you're being really generous, the Sangha in other unexpected places, times when you've been misled, you thought it was Sangha, kind of had that sort of idea of this person or this quality is going to save you, but didn't turn out to be that way. Yeah, and just uh, generally sharing about the value of that rubbing and scrubbing of commitment to relating, to being in relationship with the world, with others. So, Sharon, how many strengths did you cut? Uh, and then you guys cut another eight. eight. Okay, so that would be fifty-six divided by two, so almost twenty. So let's count by eighteen. Uh, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, um, who's there? Oh, ten. Eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, and then ten. Thirteen. Uh, seven, six, eight, 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 Very bad. and 18 go to my office and 15 and 16 go to Shelly's office okay 
and now one through fourteen. So one in that corner, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine in the community room, ten and eleven in the lobby or outside, uh, twelve on the white couch, thirteen on the big table in the basement uh, in the workshop, and. Uh, 14 outside on one of the benches, set of benches. Okay? And I have no idea where my keys are to my office. <laughs> so maybe it's not locked. I'll check. Do you know where the key is? Is it locked? No. Uh, in the hall cabinet next to the volunteer The middle drawer, there's a little black key box. Oh, yeah. Just below the. Uh, okay. Usually on the side, it's magnetic, sitting on the side of the inside of the door. 